Payments Podcast from Bottomline Technologies. Greetings. Welcome to the Payments Podcast. My name is John Gaffney. I'll be your host for this episode that continues our discussion of corporate and banking payment trends for 2024. Our topic today is the future of money. And when the future of money is the topic, there's only one guest everyone wants to hear from. We have him today. Chris Skinner is an award-winning speaker and one of the most influential people in financial technology. He is an independent commentator on the financial markets and fintech through his blog, thefinancer.com. He also helped to found one of the first mobile banks in the world and has advised CEOs and leaders from the UN to the White House, to the World Bank, to the World Economic Forum. As one of the most authoritative voices, which you will hear on fintech, uh, Chris has written many books covering everything from European regulations and banking through the credit crisis to the future of banking. His latest book is his 17th. It's called Digital for Good. It focuses on how technology and finance can impact and improve society and the planet. His previous books include Doing Digital, which shared lessons on digital transformation and inclusivity, and Digital Bank, which reviews and analyzes the battle for digital banking. It's not all about banking, however, for Chris. He's got two children's books out. One's called Captain Cake. One's called Captain Crew. Um, I checked those out. Those are pretty cool, Chris. Thanks for those. Um, Chris is also a non-executive director of 11.FS and sits on the advisory board of many fintech and financial firms. He He lectures at Cambridge University. He's a TEDx speaker and in recent years was voted one of the UK's most foremost fintech observers by the Telegraph and one of the most influential people in financial technology by the Wall Street Journal's Financial News and Thomson Reuters. Welcome, Chris. One a hell of an introduction, John. Thank you very much. Yes, it certainly is. Kudos to you. So, Chris, I want to start uh, by asking you about your latest book, which is called Digital for Good, as I mentioned. Um, and I'd like to read a quote from the beginning of it. I hope it's not playing too many cards, um, but I wanted to give our, our audience a, a sense of the book, which is really great. I highly recommend it. Um, The quote is, most companies are not doing digital transformation. They're doing incremental digital. They are evolving their company to be on the internet. They're digitizing rather than being digital. So would you include global banks in that statement? And how can they become more truly digital next year? Now, there's a whole load of things that come into the discussion here. And I guess the starting point is that most traditional banks and traditional retailers are trying to add digital technologies to their existing structures rather than reinventing their structures to be truly digital as in born on the internet. And I've met so many technology companies and particularly big tech companies and their mindset is we were born on the network you know, as in built with a digital model from day one. Um, and so what you end up with and apologies for the use of the word bastardizing, but an awful lot of the traditional companies that were physical in their business model have been adding digital, and they've kind of bastardized it to make it something that it wasn't built for because they haven't reinvented their business model to be truly digital. And the reason why they haven't done it is because it's actually really difficult. And this is what I explored in depth in doing digital which is looking at how can we build a truly digital model where the core of our business is network-based on software and servers distributing data rather than the core of our business model being physically based with buildings and humans. 
And that's something I've been playing around with and writing about for longer than most people um, because it's my passion, which is if we embrace technology properly, it can be truly transformational. So one of the things I love about the books and, and all your, your thinking and writing actually is, is the way it doesn't avoid any of the real critical questions. Um, and one of the ones you, you bring up in, in the latest book is how can we use digital services to do good for society and do good to the planet? I don't think that's a connection many people in this business make. Um, and without giving too much from the book away, can you tell us a little bit about how you see financial institutions contributing to the greater good for the planet? Well, the themes of my books tend to come from the conversations I have at com conferences and traveling and networking uh, and things like this. And so um, Digital for Good came around primarily because I was in one uh, very large Chinese financial organization and the poster on the wall as I walked in was do good for society and good for the planet in English. And I just thought, oh, wow, that's an amazing sentiment to be the first thing I see as I walk into their office. And I hadn't seen it in many other offices. I, I don't see it much in the offices of banks in Europe and America. And then I engaged with a whole range of people from every continent to give me their thoughts around the themes of you know, doing good for society and good for the planet. And the other theme that bubbled into that, so that it coalesced into, into two things, I guess. One was ESG, environmental social governance factors, but the other was purpose. And what does a bank really stand for? And if you don't stand for something, you fall down, obviously. So what do you really stand for? And I think those are great questions that I bring up when I'm running workshops um, with banks or with fintechs to say, what is it you're really here for? What, you know, what's your purpose? And then it's interesting because those themes developed into a wide range of other aspects of financial services. And there are some banks that are very heavily into this area. I guess the one that stands out for me would be Triodos Bank, which is a European bank. Um, but equally, Rabobank contributed the chapter of the book. And Rabobank were talking about how, with technology, you can now link insurance and finance with the agricultural farmers' needs. And that's their target, one of their core target audiences, um, farmers and monitor in real time what's happening in the farmers' fields with weather and pollution and acidity and rainfall and look at, therefore, how that uh, can be better protected in real time through their financial insur and insurance services. So it gets very interesting as you start to link things together. So one of the, one of the issues, I think it's it, it's probably a little less interesting actually in the bigger scope, um, but to drill down into some more practical things that that we're seeing for next year. Let's go back to your previous book, um, and into your experience in banking. So a couple of the trends we're seeing um, for next year. One is regulation. We've already seen the EU regulations come down around instant payments, and the other is around instant payments. Um, will they, you know, get more traction? Will they uh, continue? their momentum and even be accelerated next year. Do you think real-time payments and real-time settlements are the future of banking? Um, and how, if they, if you do, Chris, how do you present those advantages to business customers? They are part of the future of banking, but I'm just putting to bed my next book. You'd be surprised if I wasn't doing another book. Um, and actually, I've moved beyond real-time payments and Fed now and faster payments because 
I think now we're getting into the a new era of intelligent money, where it's embedded, invisible, intelligent, and everywhere. And the new book has got the working title, but it's pretty much put to bed, to be honest. It will come out in 2024 uh, in the summer. Intelligent money, where money thinks for us, so we don't have to think about money. So it's all about embedding invisible, intelligent money everywhere. And what I mean by that is we've seen this explosion in the last year of chat GPT, open AI, which has become a bit farcical in what's happening with the management there over the last month. Um, but what's really happening is we're moving into generative artificial intelligence or general artificial intelligence. It's a new era of AI where instead of being um, a um, a monolith function, it can actually, it can multifunction. And um, if you think about, therefore, how could you take intelligence, artificial intelligence, generative AI, and integrate that into money? What difference would that make? And I actually call it emotional payments as well, because what really starts to happen is we can give far more layers of nuance and information around transactions so they're no longer transactions but they're actually moments of time in our history and our life it's not just that i bought something on a commercial website but this is what i actually bought that website and this is what maybe why i brought it if i want to give that information um so for example as we build up to christmas i'm sending santa's christmas letters uh, from I've got two little boys who are seven years old, and so can I integrate what they actually put in their letters into the transaction? Well, yes, I can, uh, and then I can build all of that into um, almost like your library of photographs, um, a library of why you bought something. Because no one ever buys anything because they want to make a payment; they buy something because it's something that they need or an emotion or something that they're feeling at that time. And I think. Intelligent money will build that whole experience from being just a transaction to an, an emotion. Yeah, and if if I could go into th this quote is from your blog, actually, actually the book in progress, and we're looking forward to that. What if you could get every detail of every item in your shopping basket, where it came from, and how sustainable it is? So my question is, does intelligent money dovetail with digital for good? Oh, absolutely, because um, it's really all about. Uh, forget the transactional perspective. It's actually far more around um, an informational perspective. So it's how can we build all of that uh, idea of everything that relates to a transaction um, into something that um, gives a, a marker for what happened in our life. I almost compa I, I started comparing it because I was doing something recently where someone asked me to speak about um, customer engagement. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, if I go back through my life, there's songs and music that mark specific days of my life. Um, I could go through them, but, you know, by way of example, when I walk my dog, we ha I listen to something called Desert Island Discs, which is a BBC program that's been running for 60 years, I think. And people pick out eight tracks from their life that really mean something. I would like to do that with my money and with my payments and transactions and get to that stage where almost like songs, they mean something to me far more than just, oh, I paid for this then. Oh, wow. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, I love I love Desert Island Discs from the BBC. Great. Um, 
Chris, you've been writing about AI for a long time, way before it was cool. <laughs> so um, I was talking to somebody in the treasury side of this business the other day, and he said to me that um, the banking industry will never adopt AI because nobody's risky enough. Nobody thinks in, in, in terms of innovation enough. Your thoughts on that? How do you see the practical usage of AI laying out? Well, we've already seen quite a bit of AI being applied in banking. I mean, JP Morgan Chase um, had a headline about uh, six years ago, which is that they can now process commercial contracts uh, in one second that previously took 350,000 hours of legal legal time. And it's just checking the wording of contracts. Why should a human be subjected to doing that job? You know, they, they should be doing something more fruitful. And equally, UBS some years ago uh, similarly had a headline saying that they can now handle client portfolio risk from emails in 45 seconds that previously would take two or three hours of a wealth manager's time. So it's really about automating the mundane so the human can actually do something that's more insane <laughs> or, or more fun, you know. Um, wealth managers should be talk, talking to clients and looking after their needs, not doing admin. And equally, uh, lawyers should be actually doing uh, legal work that's meaningful, not just checking words in contracts. So I think the whole thing about AI, today it's being used mainly in risk management, fraud, and um, compliance. But it will spread into more customer-facing activities, and particularly in the two examples I've given there, commercial and um, uh, private banking. But you know, in, in retail banking, going beyond personal financial management into um, intelligent financial management so that I, when money thinks for us, I don't have to think about personal financial management. This, the, the machine will do it for me. Uh, and, you know, Going back years ago, John, and you and I are old enough to probably remember the idea of an infomediary. You know, and most financial firms are intermediaries. If we can automate all of that and build AI into all of that, then the infomediary becomes far more powerful as my support mechanism for commercial, corporate, and retail and high net worth clients. So you mentioned fraud um, briefly. I, I would like to get to that because it seems like despite the best efforts of the industry um, that we don't make a big dent in fraud. We've tried mandating initiatives like confirmation of payee. Um, we have various solutions put forward by many companies to mitigate payments fraud. Yet uh, 1.2 billion pounds are stolen from UK consumers last year. What is missing in the efforts to rein in payments fraud? The main issue is um, twofold. One is that criminals will always be one step ahead of the industry because they're always trying to find the holes and the chinks in the armor. Um, am I allowed to say that? I'm not sure I'm allowed to say that anymore. But they're always trying to find the, um, the, the holes in the network to uh, poke their fingers and abuse the system. And then the second is that the industry itself has a uh, perspective that certainly 20 years ago um, would be based around there's an acceptable level of fraud that can be handled by the industry. As long as it's less than one percent or point one percent, you know whatever numbers you want to throw in there, it's an acceptable level of crime. Um, the problem with that is that the criminal is getting far and far more clever. I mean, there's a scam in the UK right now that I just saw the other day, where 
criminals are putting QR codes on top of QR code payment systems like in the car parks. So you think you're paying your parking fee, you're actually paying to the server of the criminal network. Um, how would you know the difference? Well, you wouldn't because it, it's a QR code in the car park uh, for making a payment. Um, and, and equally, I could talk through so many other scams. And I think what it comes down to is just saying um, you've got to be more clever. I mean, an example of being more clever is um, Monzo, which is a UK challenger bank. Um, it's just getting an investment from Alphabet Group, Google, um, valuing it at about $4 billion pounds of five billion dollars um and one of the things they do is whenever you you open the app or do any payment they have a little message showing a, a little sign showing that you are talking to the bank and, and not to some scammer and i think those nuances those things are really important i mean a lot of banks have that but they do this in real time it's not just at sign on so it's actually whenever you're paying for your car park through a QR code, you'll know whether you're dealing with the official car park or whether you're dealing with a scammer. Um, so I want to get you, I could love to get your take on a ton of topics, but um, out of respect for your time, um, I want to play like a lightning round here where I give you a few, uh, a few, a few topics that are kind of out there on the horizon and get you a quick take on them. So if you're the CFO or CFO, CEO of Global Bank, how would you look at a the metaverse? I probably wouldn't bother. Love it. <laughs> That's a short answer. The, the, the slightly longer answer is I wouldn't bother because at the moment I don't think it's relevant. Um, yeah. It's a little bit, little bit like blockchain. Everyone got very excited about blockchain. And then most bankers that I met, particularly C-level, ended up saying, we'll wait and see if it works. And I'd say the same about Metaverse. Would you say the same about CBDCs at this point? I'd say the same about a lot of things. I, I mean, I, th I think you need to have at least one person in the company or a team in the company that's monitoring that space so that you're aware of what's developing and happening in that space. But, um, most things are at the moment on the back burner. Um, I think CBDC is slightly higher priority and crypto, I think, is now actually very high priority. And if you're not very highly prioritizing you know, activities and insights and what you can do in the crypto space, then you're missing a trick. Okay, interesting. So I, I, ESG is not something that's out there on the horizon. It's definitely here right now. But how would you counsel a bank to be more aggressive about achieving some of those goals? Well, when I finished the Digital for Good book, I realized that my personal passion has nothing to do with the climate emergency, even though a lot of people, as soon as they hear ESG, think it's all about climate. My personal passion is about biodiversity and wildlife protection because we've lost 60% of the species on Earth in the last 50 years thanks to destruction of their habitats. And that really concerns me a lot. And I support the World Wildlife Fund and a lot of other charities in, in that space. And I would say uh, equally, you mustn't think it's just environmental and biodiversity. So, for example, Tesla fell out of the S&P ESG list. There's a 300 company list because their internal governance was not good. It was claimed that they had problems with racism and by, and um, diversity. And so you need to think about the social and governance factors, not just the environmental ones. And as a bank, what I'd say is the biggest issue banks have right now is that um, most of the big banks are very heavily invested in fossil fuel firms and fossil fuel loans. And as a result, a lot of people have a big problem with that, both 
from the institutional investor side and from the consumer side. So it's a squeeze on both sides. Um, the pension funds are not happy about further investment in fossil fuel projects. And my message to the banks would, on that side be, if you can commit to no more new fossil fuel projects, that will be a differentiator. You can keep up the ones you've already got, but no more new ones. And my last topic to to get your take on is open it's banking. Just, is that supposed to be quick, that, uh, John? I'm giving you long answers. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm I'm very grateful for. But is open banking fit into intelligent money? Well, open banking is really interesting. It's a little bit like um, some of the other things we talk about: faster payments and. Um, you know, real-time payments, and that we often talk about these things from an industry insider view without thinking about the industry outside view. Because I really hate the term open banking. Um, I hate the term omnichannel as well, and I actually hate the term embedded. Um, because from an outside-in view, as a customer, they make me really nervous, particularly open banking. And when the UK launched open banking, nearly all the media headlines were were about you know your bank's going to give away your data and your details to companies who can steal money from your accounts. I would much rather we talked about it from the outside in view, which is we're creating better banking. Uh, we're giving you this invisible and intelligent service rather than something that's embedded, even though I've used that word several times in this discussion, but I use it because most people then get what you're talking about inside the industry. But if you go, you know, if you talk to the average person on the street, all they want is a safe and secure store of value that will make sure they won't lose their money. And that's what we need to focus upon from the customer's perspective the outside-in view, the better banking view, and stop talking about open banking because that gives us the idea that we're going to be leaky. Yeah, exactly. All right. Okay, that's a wrap. That is a wrap for this episode on uh, 2024 Trends. Um, our special guest today has been author, industry analyst, and I don't know how to describe you, Chris, because that, that was just fantastic. It's hit so many things, and um, everything I've read to prepare for this has been quite an enlightenment, and I want to thank you for that godfather of money the godfather of money there you go somebody once asked joe strummer how he wanted to be remembered and he said punk rock warlord there you go <laughs> there you go so anyway that is our uh, our special guest has been chris skinner thank you for joining us see you next time on apple spotify or soundcloud see you next time from Bottom Line Technologies.